The world needs that special gift that only you have. I don't really see myself as someone that has any special gifts and especially nothing I can offer to the world. How can I work out what these special gifts are that I was sent into this world with? This is a super great question. You know, I have never met one single person who doesn't have any gifts, but I've met loads of people who wonder if they even just have one. On one side, you have self-assurance and confidence, which make for a happy and healthy personality. On the other side, you have narcissistic personality disorder which is self-centered, non-empathetic, and emotionally draining to be around. Let's look at the person you're sitting beside and say to them, you're going to learn something. Go ahead and tell them that. Look right back at them and say, and it's about time. In a world that's constantly telling you how wrong you are, we want to tell you what's right with you. David McKnight is a counselor, speaker, and consultant who helps people discover how they're wired as a person. His concepts have revolutionized how people see themselves once they learn the principles behind what's right about you. Here now is David McKnight. David, you work with a lot of folks around the idea of what their gifting is. And you do an assessment of StrengthsFinder and you interpret that. You know, but today a lot of folks focus only on the gift or the strength of that gift. Sometimes that gifting can actually go dark on people. There's a, another side, a shadow or a darkness to gifting, and you call it uh, compulsive use of gifts or strengths. We often don't focus on that as a society. We always talk about, oh, that person's really gifted. They have a lot of strength in this area. But sometimes those strengths and gifts can go dark. And so let's just talk a little bit about that and explain what compulsive use of strengths or gifts is. We are all designed, uh, again, with this human behavior that's ours. Gallup came out and uh, said that your top five strengths, how many people would you have to meet in order to find someone that had the same top five as you did? And the answer was 32 million. So truthfully, we've got, when you look at the whole population of the world, there's maybe only 250 people who have strengths like you. So that makes you a pretty unique person. So we are designed a certain way behaviorally, just as we have these DNA of our physical characteristics that are unique to us. So when people are let loose and free to do what they want to do, I say that you can see the best use of someone's design in childhood, where they're free of all constraints to do what they feel led to do. That's why you see some kids playing in a group, some kids want to play themselves, some people want to take, th some little boys want to take things apart. People are doing things and in childhood is the best bed of evidence for who a person really is. So as you get older, you're led to kind of do what you do best. And of course, if you've been told don't do that, then you think something's wrong with me. But if that's what you feel, if you're feeling in a pressure situation, you're going to do what you do best, and you might be doing it compulsively because you don't know any other way. Let's just say uh, they, have the, they have a real sense, a gift of responsibility. They're working together in, in, in a group, and oh, some people are half-hearted about it. And, but if this person has responsibility, and by the way, we all have some piece of all the strengths that Gallup has come up with, but the five or six or the top maybe ten are those who are, and they're like in capital letters, where responsibility for me would be in small letters, 
for somebody it's in capital letters. And so they just can't let things go. They have to be responsible. So sometimes they take on more than they should. They, uh, that's why some people get a chip on their shoulder because no one's really appreciating all the things that I'm getting done for them when it wasn't theirs to do in the first place. But they have this sense of responsibility and they look around and they take on things that maybe they shouldn't. So that's a compulsive use of a gift, a very good gift, a wonderful gift, a gift that this world needs, people who are responsible. But what are you responsible for? Own that, not other people's pieces. So someone that has that situation and they're, they're taking on all this stuff, they start to get bitter. They get kind of mad and no one appreciates me anymore. And, and uh, oftentimes people storm off because no one cared. Well, they didn't ask you to do what you were doing, but your sense of responsibility. So it's important to understand the boundaries around our gifts. So where does my gift begin and end? And where does it begin and end in the context I find myself? Let's go back a little bit, unpack more of that darkness issue. Because I do know that people who have some great strengths, as you're, as you're illustrating, it, there's a dark side of those strengths as well. But you talk a lot about truth and fact. And I always thought they were one and the same, but they're not. And so when we're talking about uh, the compulsive use of strength, uh, or i.e. the darker side of strength, what is and how does truth and fact fit into that? Well, let's just take uh, Tom, who has the gift of achieving. That's his number one strength, and he's in the office. And Tom is known for being very busy, getting things done, and doesn't really talk to people all that much, or, or he doesn't seem to care that much because he's so busy trying to accomplish things. Now, that's kind of what I would call the shadow or the counterfeit side of someone's strengths, and so we can look at it from the people, the other people in the office see Tom a certain way. Dark side of that is only if he is getting compulsive and running over people, and there are those situations where they leave their footprints on someone's back because in their desire to achieve, yeah, they, they, they use people. They don't care. They, uh, they're climbing the ladder, and they'll do whatever it takes to achieve. But someone who's really using their gift is an achievement. They, they day starts out at zero, and they want to get to 10. And that gives them energy. That gives them excitement. That gives them reason to get up in the day. That gives meaning and purpose to their life. But if I'm looking at Tom and just seeing him being so busy, getting things done, I might look at Tom and say, he doesn't really care about anybody. And so I'll talk to Joe in the next cubicle and say, you notice Tom doesn't seem to really care about people because he's always so busy? Yeah, I've noticed that. Well, that can kind of spread around, and pretty soon there's a label on the back of Tom's back that says, Tom doesn't care about people, which is not the truth. They've observed a fact. The fact is Tom's busy. Tom gets things done. That's a fact. But it's not the truth because they're saying Tom doesn't care. But he does care. But what he cares most about is, is, is what God has given him to do, is to get things done, to accomplish things, to execute on things. So the truth is Tom's a good executor. He's a good at what he does and getting things done. The fact they observe is he doesn't seem to really have empathy or care about people. That's a fact, but it's not the truth. So I hope that explains it. Uh, so when we get at the truth, David, I mean, when we're trying to, to search for what is the truth about a person, not the, just the observable facts, yes. how do we go about doing that? Yes. Well, first of all, you come to a person with the mindset that there is something 
right about this person. That's the number one thing. When you begin with that in mind, then observing somebody and seeing what they do consistently, then you can begin to get at who they really are. But if you don't come with that, if you come with, in essence, your filter that says everybody's got to do this, and what you're observing is they're not doing it, that gets you off on the, really gets you off on the wrong foot. People do what they're designed to do. It's like a artesian well. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. You really can't shut what someone does best off. They can't shut it off because it's a part of who they are. And so the best thing is when you say you have water that's coming out, you want to channel it and use it, manage it so it, it works for you. But if you just let it go you know, unabashed without any control, then it kind of splashes on people. It, it, can, it doesn't work for you. So the, uh, the whole idea of having this gift, the problem is, say Johnny's raised in a house where mom and dad uh, observes what he does best and he affirms it, they value it, they get him to understand that, they talk to him about it, and Johnny begins to go, yeah, that's really what I enjoy doing. And they, and they keep talking to him about that. So by the time he leaves school, he knows who he is. Versus Billy over here, when he's doing what he does best, and his parents don't see it that way, and they're constantly telling him to sit down, stop, don't do this, pretty soon Billy begins to think, gee, this thing I do, I shouldn't do, so I'll try to sit on it. I'll try to put it in the back burner. I'll, I'll try to be better. And they end up with a counterfeit sense of who they are, and they, meanwhile they've had this gift that's uh, not been observed. And maybe someday down the road someone will say, hey, Billy, you really have a good gift. You can do this. But he's never heard that. So, David, the question I have is when you approach somebody with what is right about them, what are some of the criteria? I mean, maybe it's kind of obvious, and, and yet maybe not so much. Is there some criteria that's used when you're observing somebody and asking that question, what is right about them? You can look at what are the things that someone does repeatedly. And they get enjoyment out of it, and they feel a sense of purpose from it. And you can go back into childhood and, and ask them, tell me about things you enjoyed doing, felt you did well, and then what was satisfying about it. And people will begin to tell you a story. And in that story are the facts or the pieces needed to find out what is in their design. And that's a, so the best data really is in childhood. You know, parents will come to me and say, I can't get my kid to stop doing this. <laughs> and... Uh, could you help me? Well, probably I can't help them stop doing it because that's what they're supposed to do. Parents need to help them channel that gift or that desire in order to see that it's something that, that they can use going forward in life, and it's not something that's wrong with them. I, I once had a, a mother. She was a CEO of a company. We were having a meeting about her company, and then she stopped the meeting, and she says, I want to talk about my kids. So I got three kids, two boys and a girl. Oldest, I get it. He's more like me. I understand him. The daughter, I cannot understand here. But this middle child is driving me crazy. Okay, so we're, all, so we're starting out with the idea that there's something wrong with this child. So I asked her, so describe to me a situation. Well, we go to the donut shop. I take him in to buy donuts, and there's a bunch of them. He can never make up his mind. What's wrong with him? Okay, then I asked her another question. So when you're how does your son like to play? Well, he's up in his room by himself. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's probably taking something apart, putting it together, playing with some toys. He's just, so right there, I have two things come out. He's a process person. You can't put 100 donuts in front of him and ask him to pick one because he's got to process 100 donuts. 
What if he just said, Johnny, do you want a glazed donut or a chocolate donut? See how that works. And he's taking things apart in his room because he's trying to figure things out. He's a process person. Well, that in fact was the case, you know. Next time she began to narrow his choices down to just one or two, and he all of a sudden became a wonderful child. Did he change? No, mom changed. Mom changed her approach. Mom changed her a sense of there's something right about my son, and I'm going to find out what it is. And, and so there are ways to observe our behavior. You know, sometimes I call myself a behavioral economist because your behavior has consequences, and a lot of times they're economic. So knowing this as going into adulthood, they have behavior. There's a way they do things, and they do that well. Now find a context in which that will pay them, in which they can find purpose and meaning in life. Okay, let's play a little game. And the game is you're going to decipher what's right about me. And so if I ask you that, I want to see how accurate you are when you're looking at me. What's right about me, David? Well, what I observe about you, Larry, is one, just by looking around the room tells me some things about you. There's things about you in this room. So a sense of identity is important to you. There's an orderliness to your room. The books are all lined up. Your desk is, everything's laid out. There's order in this room. You come into this room and there's order, which brings a sense of peace. And I've been in offices where there's kind of chaos, but I understand that's who they are, so I need to approach them from that perspective. Well, you know, you're not bad. I think I'll sign up. (laughs) (laughs) I do like order and I like context. Something has to have meaning to me in order for it to make sense. If you give me no meaning, no context, I have no way of processing that. I'm just kind of lost. That's why if you give me a theme or a topic that I can get my hands and arms around, I do fairly well. But just this sort of willy-nilly kind of uh, ad-lib stuff, sometimes that drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Earlier this week, I had, I had a meeting with, with a race car driver and his two crew members. And we did a little exercise to find out what was right about all three of them. And what came out of the, the, the driver or the guy who was kind of paying the two crew members, he had the majority of what he did best in his n- number one, two, three things was all in, a, in the desire to get things done. He had a sense of achievement, a sense of belief, and a sense of responsibility that were very strong. Okay, now, the two crew members had each something in the idea of strategy, thinking, you know, what's going to happen? What's the context, the history? And, and uh, so I lay that out, and I said, and the driver says, oh, that's why when we pull into a, a new racetrack, so-and-so gives me the history of that track. I've never been here before, but that's important to him. But he also would give me a futuristic sense of what's coming down the road. So that little discussion lifted the self-esteem of that guy that's got to help make this car go, lifted him way up. And it took a burden off the driver who felt like he had to have a sense of responsibility because that's what his thing is, that he could let go of some things and release it to some of his crew members who had very good gifts but were underutilized. So that's a little example of how context came out in a discussion that may change someone's life. David, this is what you do for people. You do this for churches and corporations and businesses and race car drivers, uh, as you just uh, related. So at the end of the day, when somebody contacts you, and they want you to come and make a presentation 
to their group. What exactly is your elevator speech for that? How do you respond to them? If I come in and I leave, what is it that you want to see that's different? And usually it always stems around behavior, uh, relationships and behavior. Uh, a leader needs to make an emotional connection with his followers, and the best way to do that is to know who they are, to know the gift, to know what's right about each person in the room. And so I will probably start from that perspective, and that usually, that's the, the core piece, and often then it branches out into team development, working the mediation, so-and-so aren't, they aren't getting along, or, or even it moves into vision and how can we do what we're doing better, uh, what's our purpose. All those things are core to individuals as well as to any organization. And so to take, I can easily translate it from an individual to a corporation. Core values for the individual, core values for the organization. They're all very important for success. If you would like to know more about what you've heard today, you can contact David McKnight by calling 612-990-6604. Again, that number is 612-990-6604. 